Well, normally, when I think up sermon titles, here's how it works. I study the text all week, and I figure out kind of where the text is going and the main point of the text. And then I title the sermon something that has to do with the main point, so that throughout the sermon I work my way there. And by the time I kind of get to the main point and the sermon title, you're like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I did that this week and, you know, worked through the text and everything, and I got to one of the main points and titled our sermon. But I'm going to start at the title, because I think, A, if you're a title looker-atter, it can be distracting. And if you never look at the title, look at it now. Jesus' call to a kind of atheism. Okay, don't leave yet. Don't leave. Now, when I say atheism or atheist, what people or images or words come to your mind? Richard Dawkins, okay, what'd you say? Don't believe in God. Anything else? Just kind of what pops into your mind when I say atheist? Hmm? Darwin, okay, okay. Community college. Great, great. I love that. This free association, community college. All right, all right. Good. Well, you've probably heard all kinds of stories uh, if you've hung around church that uh, in the first few hundred years of church history, uh, Christians from time to time were persecuted from various Roman emperors. What you may not know is that early Christians were often persecuted because they were called atheists, right? Rome was a vast empire at its height. In fact, Joe's going to put a picture up there for you of the vastness of Rome. Look at that. Um, So you see Italy there. That's kind of the uh, Roman Republic at 264 BC. And by 117, right there in the early church, um, all of that dark colored stuff from Britain to the lower parts of Egypt and the Nile River, from uh, the eastern side of Syria, all the way to the Strait of Gibraltar in Spain, that's all the Roman Empire. And in a world without phones and internet and high-speed transportation, it could take over a month to get information from that capital to the outlying areas. Plus, Rome was an occupying force. That means they just came into your country and said, this is ours now. You don't have to like it. So most of, uh, in in the Roman mind, the way that they would then maintain some kind of control or quote-unquote peace would be um, through military occupation, and they would also force their people to a certain social structure. They would make you conform uh, to certain social standards. Think how hard that would be in all these different places where people had different cultures and different first languages and different religious backgrounds. So Rome would come in and tell you this is the law, this is how it's going to be. And if anyone didn't follow that law, didn't get on board with Rome and their pantheon of gods, they were seen as insurrectionists and they would be put down. Thanks, Joe. Take that down. Well, Christians, of course, worshipped Jesus, who they claimed rose from the dead. We're still claiming that today, by the way. Simply worshipping one more God is not a big deal to Rome. Oh, sure, add your Jesus to the pantheon. What the big deal was is that these Christians would say, Oh, no, 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 we don't want to worship your other gods either. We just want to worship Jesus. Right Now that was a problem because one of the ways that Rome would maintain a sense of cohesion and a sense of peace was to have public festivals. And 
and um, what they would do is they would have a festival to a specific god. They would have these festivals all the time. Oftentimes the emperors or governors would supply food, and so all the peasants would say, oh, this is great, this emperor rocks because he's providing a barbecue, and it just so happens that the barbecue was in the honor of... Name of God, right? So the Christians would not participate in these barbecues, in these uh, idol worship events. And so oftentimes they would be persecuted and sometimes killed. Now, every culture creates its own pantheon of gods. They're basically the same gods from generation to generation with different names. So let's take the gods of nature, for example. In Greek and Roman times, you would have, for example, Bacchus, who would be the, the god of wine and frolic and all the happy things. Or Poseidon, god of the seas. People would make sacrifices to them as a way to gain their favor. And then you can fast forward to European Middle Ages, and those gods were replaced by, oftentimes, magic. The idea that with the right words or the right potions, you could manipulate nature. We're still talking about nature. It's just switched from polytheism now to magic. And today we have the god of technology to take care of nature, right? In fact, um, we're supposed to be able to predict weather pretty well, but we left our hammock out last night. It got poured. I, I, I didn't think it was going to rain last night. But uh, we can think we can control the genome, and we use mobile devices to extend our power. I can get information about anything, anytime, anywhere, right? In the text we're exploring this evening, Jesus warns us of the seductive gods of finding our security in wealth. All right? And that's, that god of mammon or wealth has been around since the beginning of time. It's to these false gods in our culture that I think Jesus is calling us to be atheists. Let's read the text. Would you stand with me as we consider the Gospel of Matthew Chapter 6, verses 19 through 25. This is, remember, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is continuing this teaching. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves cannot break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? The eye is, is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And then Jesus cuts to the chase. No one can serve two masters. For either he will he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth or mammon you pray with me jesus we thank you for um, your very challenging words and we pray for grace to hear them afresh with fresh ears this evening and lord i'm thankful that you know us as a church and you know us individually and i pray that you would speak to us in both ways lord that you would show us as a church how to be generous and to put our faith in you not our stuff And as individuals, I pray, Lord, for the same, that you would stretch us to become more and more people of faith in you and not just the things we can feel or see. Thank you. Amen. You may be seated. There are... uh, there's a natural way to break up this text. It breaks down into three parts. The two treasures, 
the two wise and the two masters. And we'll take each one of these in part. But I want to remind you that this teaching is right in the Sermon on the Mount, which means that it's about life in the kingdom of God, which means that it's really good news. So this is some challenging stuff, but I want to remind you that it's good news. So be looking for good news as we go through this text. Be looking for gospel. Now, a word on treasure and and hearts. I have to admit that every time I read this text about storing up treasures, I just get this image of a treasure chest, like that's partly cracked open with gold and like jewels spilling out. It's it's, it's hard for me. I think about like a pirate thing, and I can't get it out of my mind, and it, it makes this whole text seem kind of unreal, right? So I think what's helpful... Um, What's helpful is to know that in the Greek, that word for store up actually has a connotation of canning, of preserving things for the future. And so just yesterday, Corey and her mom canned these green beans right from our garden. Really beautiful. So this is a little more realistic than the treasure chest. So I'll just stick the can of beans right there. I don't know if you can see those. I think I'll get in trouble for putting them on this piano. Here, coaster. All right. Can of green beans. Now, it's also helpful to know that that word store up in, the, in our English text, in the Greek, is from the same root word as the next word, treasure. So here's what it would actually say literally. Do not treasure treasures on earth, but treasure treasures in heaven. Okay? Do not treasure treasures on earth. All right. So what does this mean? Do not treasure green beans. Do not treasure preserved things. No, that's, that's not it at all. Actually, the idea is something like this. Do not treasure earthly solutions to future security. Do not treasure earthly solutions to future security. But treasure treasures in heaven. For wherever your treasure is, wherever your heart, your will, your energy, your devotion, there your heart will be also. You know what that's another way of saying? There your worship will be also. There your worship will be. So is Jesus then saying, I just got to get my head around this, is he literally saying don't have savings accounts? Or don't can food for the winter. Or don't hold on to family heirlooms. Is, that, is this an anti-materialism message? No. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount, I've been saying this every week, the Sermon on the Mount is not like Jesus' new list of, of rules that we have to follow. It's his vision for what life can look like in the kingdom of heaven. It's recovery of God's original ethics behind his laws. Scripture, I mean, if we look at the broader thing, Scripture is full of exhortations to work and to be prudent. Just earlier in this same chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about giving alms to the poor. You can't give alms to the poor if you don't have any material possessions, right? It's impossible. So I don't think he's talking about anti-materialism here. In the book of Acts, we read about many of the churches taking up a collection of money for the church in Jerusalem that's suffering. That's difficult to do if, you, if Jesus is also saying, don't have money. In Acts 16, we learn of a disciple named Lydia who was wealthy. And Jesus himself was um, supported by many wealthy people, many of them women. So money and wealth can 
and should be used for the good of others as well as one's own enjoyment. If you don't know 1 Timothy 4.4, you should learn that. Let me read it for you. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. This is a really good corrective for the times when we kind of go Gnostic. Gnosticism is that idea that flesh and earth, they're bad and spiritual is good. That's not a Christian idea. That's not a Hebrew idea. Uh, the idea is that God sanctifies matter. We just can't put matter higher than God. So... Jesus is not saying we should not have stuff. He's not saying that money in itself is bad. On the other hand, Jesus does warn us against greed. He tells the parable, uh, the one that uh, Brian read earlier, of a man who is rich. So he runs out of storage space, right? And what does he do? He tears down the old barns to, that he stores his grain in, and he builds bigger ones. So he can store more grain, and then his whole purpose in that is that he could have a life of ease. Now... We're not looking at the Luke passage tonight, so I'm not going to get real deep on it. But just a cursory look. He says in that passage, the man speaking, he says the word I six times. He says the word my four times. His thought process is all about him. There's not a mention of what honoring God with those funds might look like. There's not a mention of his fellow person who might be starving right next door to him. It's all about what he can get. Jesus calls him a fool because he puts all this effort into storming up these earthly treasures. And he says, you know, you don't even know. Your life might be gone tomorrow, and then what? Where does all your stuff go? He says, store up treasures in heaven. He says, be rich in God. I love this. I mean, the issue is surprisingly practical. In our text, notice Jesus does not say, he does not say, do not store up for yourselves treasures. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Because it's a bad investment. It's a bad investment. Dale Bruner insightfully points out that moths and rust and thieves represent the demise of all earthly treasures. The moth represents nature. Nature has a way of reminding us of our impermanence, doesn't it? In the first century, there were no banks or stock markets that you could put your wealth into. So people would have coins, and they would bury a hole right in the dirt floor of their house and bury those coins. Not very safe. The other thing that people could do was buy expensive linen robes. So you could invest in linen, and what would happen? Moths could destroy that, right? Or you could invest in property. Moths could eat fine linens. Nature's power through storms and erosions and fires could take all that property away. Rust represents the corrosive power of time. Time will eventually corrode coins. It'll take the vigor out of young women and young men who rely maybe on their physical prowess to get things done. Time will take away the sharpness of our minds as we get older. Those of us who rely on maybe intellect to get ahead in the world, time will take all of that away. No one can escape it. And thieves represent the human aspect. In the first century, as I mentioned, if you bury all your coins in your floor, all it takes is a stronger person to come in and take them from you. 
Thieves represent the sin aspect as well. For every ambitious person, there's another willing to work harder or dirtier to take what you have. Jesus says, make an investment, not in earthly, time-bound things, but in heaven. So, what does that mean? Well, actually, I've got Eric, you know, he's our treasurer. He's going to hand out deposit slips for an offshore account in heaven after church. No, that's not... What does this mean? Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus is not talking about a place. He's talking about a value. Saying heaven was a respectful way of saying God. Store up for yourselves treasures in God. Invest in God's priorities. Invest your focus and your finances and your vigor and your goals in God. And what God is doing, because that is what will last forever. Now, this is an important distinction. This is not saying don't worry about what you do with your life. This is not saying that if you're a carpenter, stop doing that because it's so earthly. This, the good news is that for all of the labor that we do, all of the, the, the investment we make into people, if it is for God, if it is in God's name, if it is for Jesus... It is lasting. I was thinking about Nathaniel. He's, he has a painting company. You're, <laughs> he do quality work. Nathaniel could do the same job on the same day, and it could be for earthly, earthly treasure, or it could be for God. He could do it for his own gain. He could cut corners. He could just do it to make a buck so that he could have some extravagant lifestyle in the painter's world, right? Or he could do what he does. And basically mentor people on the job, do exceptional work, care for his family with it, and do it in God's name. It's the same job. So we're not, I'm not saying forsake your jobs on earth or, or look at living on earth as a different way. I'm saying what is our motive behind why we do what we do? Again, Bruner says it well. Look at a person's goals and you'll find their gods. Where the Old Testament says, you shall have no other gods but me, Jesus is kind of saying, you shall have no other goals but me. For wherever our goals and our focus is, that's where our treasure is. It's where our time and our talent and our finances, our very heart will be also. And then Jesus starts talking about these two kinds of eyes. He talks about good eyes and bad eyes and being filled with light and darkness. And what is this all about? Well, in the first century, people didn't really have medical background, right? That's pretty new. So they didn't know about corneas and retinas and how, like, when the image comes in, it comes in upside down and your brain has to flip it. And obviously, I don't know a lot about eyes either. But there are people that do. And they didn't in this culture. So... There were kind of two basic ways of seeing this. I'm glad we have our resident philosopher here. But kind of the Epicurean view would be that, that objects, I'm looking at this hydrangea right now, that it, a shadow, an image of this is actually coming in and in some way coming into my body through this hole called an eye and it influences me. So you could be influenced by what you look at. And, and that might be why Jesus makes such a big deal about plucking your eyes out if you have a problem with lust. Right, Because what you look at can come in and influence you. Uh, Plato and, and Philo had a different view. They, they almost viewed your eyes as headlights. So what's already in your disposition comes out and puts value on what you're looking at. Now in either case, the call here is to have a good eye or a simple eye or a focused eye. An eye focused on treasure in heaven, not on earthly things. 
If your eye is focused on what is perishable, on what is not lasting, and you make that the light of your world instead of the light of the world, then what happens? You think you're filling yourself up with this good thing, with this light, with this life. And really what you find is that you're filling yourself up with darkness and death. And when you find out that you're on the wrong path, it's like, oh, how great is the darkness I've been filling myself up with. E. Stanley Jones said, what gets your attention gets you. What gets your attention gets you. So, what is a simple eye? What is a good eye? It means to have a generous disposition. The eye is linked with generosity in multiple places in Scripture. One example, right in the same Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verse 15. In this example, Jesus tells that parable about the workers in the vineyard. You know, you have the ones that show up right in the morning, and, and they work all day. And then the master hires those dudes at noon, and they work half a day. And then the master hires a third crew about 2 o'clock, and they just work a few hours. So at the end of the day, all the workers, all three groups come together, and the master says, I'm generous. I'm going to pay you all the same amount. Well, the guys who started first, they start complaining and saying, oh, that's not fair. We worked all day. Those guys didn't work but just a few hours. And Jesus replies, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Here's the punchline. Or is your eye envious or bad? Because I am generous or good. So to have a good eye means to have a generous eye. To look at the world eyes wide open instead of squinty and calculating and always trying to figure out how to get a leg up on everyone else. It means to look upon the world and other people with a disposition of giving rather than how can I dominate the situation or control it to work into my favor. That's the difference between a good eye and a bad eye. A good eye is generous because the one with the good eye treasures treasure in heaven. The good eye is simple, uncluttered, content, and thus able to hold on to possessions with a loose grip. Recognizing that what we have, we're really just caretakers of, not masters over. All resources are God's resources. Now, the third section, Jesus just cuts to the chase. No one, no one can serve two masters. He does not say... You should not serve two masters. He's stating like a law of the universe here. You cannot serve two masters. It's really not up for argumentation. He says it's impossible to serve two masters, so stop trying to delude yourself into thinking you can. Sure, you might have two or more employers. You might have multiple hobbies. But why do you work? That will reveal your master. Why do you play? That will reveal your master. Why do you relate to others in the way you do? That may reveal your master. The answer to all these questions will reveal our true masters. So if you work to enjoy your job and to do it for the glory of God, then God is your master. But if you work long hours just to escape from being at home or to finance a lifestyle that is extravagant and luxurious, then it reveals that your master might be someone other than God or something other than God. 
Jesus uses this Aramaic term, mammon, to describe this alternative God. And the dictionary definition of mammon is property. But by the first century, it became to know basically anything that we put our faith in for the future. Whatever earthly possession or pursuit we put our trust into. So we can find our mammon in work, in our own security, in control. Christians, we can put our mammon in making sure we have the right doctrine. Or making sure that other people see us as really good Christians. Most often, though, mammon has to do with money. Money is a great tool, horrible master, right? Cliche, but I had to say it. It's true. Mammon means a lot of things besides money, but it at least means money. And I was thinking about it. Our very own Nicole and I came to mind. And so I've asked her to go ahead and come up so that I can interview her before you. Most of you know Nicole because she's one of our worship leaders. And uh, she's just an awesome person. Um, Nicole, let me get you a chair here. But what you may not know about Nicole is that she's also a professional organizer and uh, has been a, a, a budget coach with Love, Inc. and um, I think Whatcom Dream, maybe. Probably lots of other stuff I don't know, but uh, you're awesome nonetheless. So um, let's welcome her, please. Good. So being a professional organizer and budget coach, you appear to have all your ducks in a row. Um, but as you and I have gotten to know each other a little bit and, and have shared, um, I, it's comforting to know that you're just like the rest of us, that you, even you, have struggled from time to time with mammon in your life. And I was wondering if, uh, from your perspective, if you could give a, just a small example of what that may look like. I've definitely struggled off and on with, you know, trusting God that I would be provided for, that I would have enough money, and um, we have the, we've had this argument for like at least five years where subject of the prayer might change, but it always starts with God. I just need to know, and He goes, "No, daughter, you need to trust <laughs> God. You don't get it. Actually, I just need to know this one thing." And He's like, "No, actually, you need to trust." <laughs> and I'm not very successful at getting him to do it my way, so oftentimes I have tried to manipulate it and get it to go my way, which doesn't work and leaves me feeling incredibly anxious and, and just restless and this feeling of um, just not being able to accomplish my agenda. And um, I, I was talking to um, actually my business law teacher, and I was asking him about a specific situation as I was talking to you about. And it was, I all of a sudden started realizing one of my jobs is kind of under the table and realized I'm not paying taxes on this. Like, so if I don't claim this at the end of the year, it's going to be tax evasion. And I kind of started freaking out because I'm like, I haven't saved for taxes. And, and you know, so I, I emailed him and he encouraged me on the practical side. But he said something that really stood out to me. Um, he said, let him have the honor of taking care of you. If you try to manipulate this, you're removing an opportunity for his grace to sparkle, hmm. which is just kind of a cool way of putting it. Hmm. And since I talked to you yesterday, I actually, you know, I, I, I got an email back and I, you just made that choice. I said, you know, I'm going to claim this and whatever happens, happens. And talked to the guy in charge of payroll and he goes, oh no, we pay the taxes. <laughs> so it's like God totally already... <laughs> Yeah, God is really cool. Great. That's my specific story. Thanks, Nicole. Um, we talked a couple of days ago, and I asked you, 
basically a, a young, attractive person like you um, gets to a place where you're falling to bed, falling to sleep, reading Dave Ramsey books, and uh, being a, a budget coach, and you know, just. You, cool. you kind of think like a dorkier guy, like like Eric or something, doing that, but but not. And and you said, um, you know, one that you had an aptitude for it; it just clicks for you. And two, that that you see finance as a as a potential place of spiritual bondage for people, and because you're good at it, you like to help people out of that. So one, I just want to thank God for making you good at it, because I, I, it's not one of my gifts. And thank you for using your. Uh, your gifts to help people. I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate on an example of um, what you mean by finances being a potential for spiritual bondage. Yeah. You know, I, when I was kind of preparing for that question, I looked and there's a few scriptures that stood out to me. The first is um, in Romans 13:8, where it basically says, don't have any debts except to love one another. You know, don't owe anyone anything. Don't let money be an issue. Um, and, you know, kind of the concept of if someone is in need, you know, give them, if you're able to, give them the money. And if you're not, then you're not. Um, but that was a good point. And then in Proverbs, I, I love the verse from Proverbs 22, 7, where it says, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. And basically, whenever you have a loan from anyone, you are kind of their slave. You're tied to them. It's like... It's like a marriage born out of necessity that you can't divorce from, <laughs> and you're and you're stuck with it. And I don't know how. I'm sure many of you carry loans of some time, whether it's credit card debt or student loans, or or maybe mortgages that are feeling a little bit heavier if you've you know become less employed. Um, but you know that feeling where there's that anxiety hanging over you, and it affects your emotional well-being. It can affect your physical well-being. I know I've made myself sick over worrying about my car. You know, and it affects it affects your ability to do things you enjoy. You know, if you can't afford to participate in sports you like or go to events that you like, and then it and it makes it so that you can't afford to give. And so, um, I think that that's kind of how it affects your you know, spiritual and emotional and physical and, and everything, and and right. just weighs you down. Great, thank you. Um, and the final thing is, um, I know that you've done some budget counseling on and off with Love Inc. and 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 I think that. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think there's kind of a stigma maybe with, um, with people who have enough finances month to month that, boy, you, you must really have to have gotten in trouble or really bad into debt to take advantage of something like budget coaching. Um, but that's not necessarily true, is it? And, and I, I guess I wanted to hear from you, how could a person, the average middle class person who can make the month to month, how could they benefit from taking a closer look at their their financial situation. You know, the, each of the programs that you've mentioned are kind of different. There's the Wacom Dream, which um, is great at establishing financial literacy on the really basic end. But when I took the class, um, when I was interested in starting to teach it, we actually went through a session where you actually look at your values and your priorities and you come up with a life mission statement. Mm -hmm. And then you apply that to your budget. And it kind of, there's like this sense of peace where your priorities match, where what's important to you is evidenced by how you're spending your money and you're not so out of control. And then there's the Love Inc. does budget boot camps, which is just really, really strict and kind of gets you back into shape. And then there's things like Financial Peace University that Dave Ramsey, the program he has. And um, basically all those programs, what they're doing is they're helping you look at your financial situation and see where it's at. There's a lot of people that come in, they might be living in poverty and they don't know how much debt they have, but they also might be middle class families and they don't know where their debt is. And there's a sense of anxiety that comes with that. Even if you do have enough, 
Um, I've you know had a friend come to me and and I knew she was making way more money than me, but she goes, you know, I might be losing my job and I have no idea if I have enough money. And I said, well, how much do you spend on you know few, these few items? And she goes, I don't know. <laughs> and so these programs or the books that you can read or even spreadsheets you can download, it just helps you kind of take a look at your finances and and I kind of feel like being a steward, like I was talking to you about, it's it's more than just managing your money well based on on your opinion of it or on you know deciding what's good things and bad things to spend it on. But I feel like being a good steward also means utilizing those tools that are available to us. So whether it be getting coaching or whether it be taking a class or reading a book, I think it's really helpful um, to give you an understanding of things and maybe teach you some things, but also the encouragement and the support and the accountability um, that comes with those things. Thank you so much. Would you give Nicole a hand? And I just want to recommend Nicole um, as, a, as a point of contact if you have questions how you can find out more about budget coaching or good books on that subject. She's a, a great resource. Thank you, Nicole. Well, you've probably heard it a hundred times, but it's relatively true in our culture that if you look at a person's bank statements, you'll have a good idea about their priorities, give or take some things. When we don't take our financial situation seriously, when we don't actually know where our money is going, we're in danger, of course, of getting into debt on the one hand, or on the other hand, we're in danger of, of um, neglecting to make sure that our spending is in line with our responsibility to use God's resources for God's purposes. Um, so what I'm going to give you is five questions. Uh, Daryl Johnson, a professor at Regent, gave me these five questions, and he calls them mammon detectors. Um, if you don't get them all down, just ask me later. Maybe I'll put it on the Facebook page or something like that. One, what gives me hope for the future? What gives me hope for the future? Anything other than the living God, you might be dealing with a mammon issue. I say might be. Two, what is my greatest joy? What is my greatest joy? Three, what do I fear? What do I fear? It can lead potentially to, to mammon, to obsessing about protecting you from that fear, or it could lead to the dark side of the force, fear. But pay attention to that. What do you fear? Here's another one. What themes in Scripture do I often try to avoid? What themes in Scripture do I often try to avoid? And five, what is it that if it was taken away from me, I would cease loving God? What is it in my life that if it were taken from me, I would cease loving God? This is a challenging passage, and it's good for us. But I want you to remember that it is good news. Remember who Jesus is addressing this message to, his disciples, his disciples. Jesus wants us to be free from the bondage of mammon, free from slavery to earthly values and possessions that cannot save us. The good news is that Jesus, in addressing it to his disciples, people already saved by grace, 
people already in his kingdom. The good news about that is that he's not saying, hey, this is the stuff you've got to get perfect before you can enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, no, you, you enter the kingdom of heaven by grace, by blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if you're wrestling with this stuff and saying, this is difficult, Father, help me, then you are in the right spot. And what this is about is Jesus saying, there's a whole new life of freedom I want to give you. And I want to help you through these things. So, here's the charge. I charge us in Jesus' name to become atheists to the gods of materialism and mammon in our culture. And to strive with one another to put Christ first as the guarantor of our future and our salvation. Would you pray with me? Yeah, Jesus, I can think of a million ways already spinning through my mind. Yeah, but, but what about this? But where are you here? Ah, oh, thank you that uh, you say blessed are the poor in spirit. Lord, I pray for those who are feeling ultra convicted, that you would uh, let them receive your grace and remind them in a tangible way of how you love, of how you have already saved us, how you have died for us on the cross while we were still sinners. Thank you. At the same time, Jesus, I am so thankful that you don't just call it good right there, that you, you have a, a vision for a full and abundant and robust life that you want us to, to live in. You want us to be free from these false masters and to know you as good through and through and worthy of trust. So we put our hands up and just confess that it takes a miracle to believe that. But thank you that you're a God who does miracles all the time. Lord, we repent afresh of our faith in anything but you and ask that you would show us creatively how to be free once and for all. In Jesus' name, amen.